You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, church family. Hope you guys are doing well. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is John Hall, and I am one of the elders here at Citizens Church. And man, it's my privilege and joy to be here with you this morning, have this opportunity to look into God's Word with you. So before we jump into our text in Matthew 6, 22 through 24, uh, I want to back up and I want to make sure that we have the context of this passage first. Uh, The passage is not going to make much sense unless we understand the context in which it finds itself. So let's take a few minutes to look at where we've been and how that plays into the text this morning. So back in April, we started uh, diving into Matthew 6. And so this deals with a completely different section of the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the first 18 verses. And as Jamin explained to us that the first section of that, those 18 verses, deals with the rhythms of a disciple's life. And there were two hopes that would come out of studying those rhythms. One is that we would spend more time with God. And the second is that we would make time for God. So the thinking goes like this. You cannot become like Jesus unless you spend time with God And you will not spend time with God unless you make time for God. And so this section, the first 18 verses of Matthew 6, deals with the necessary rhythms and the life of a disciple. And in these rhythms, there is by necessity some structure needed, and then there are things that only God can control. And so the metaphor that was used, if you remember this and you've been around the last uh, month or so, is that we talked about the trellis and the vine. And so the trellis represented the structure that we need to bring into our lives to make sure that we get to meet with God. And then the vine represented the organic growth that only God can bring and that only God can control in those moments. And so as we studied those first 18 verses, there were basically four rhythms that Jesus spelled out for us that needs to be a part of the hidden life of every kingdom citizen. One of those was the rhythm of generosity and giving. And then there was the rhythm of prayer. And then there was the rhythm of forgiveness. And then there was the rhythm of fasting, which Tamarcus preached on. Uh, at the whole house, we try to uh, put these into our lives, these rhythms. We try to build those into our family life, as you will. And part of our routine every day is that as we put our kids to bed, we pray and we ask our kids to reflect on the day that they've had and to thank God for the things that he's brought into their lives. And I'm always amazed by the things that they thank God for. Some of these things I, I would think of as trivial and not that important, and yet God reminds me that he flows through everything and he speaks through the life of my kids. And so I've also reminded them that sometimes God brings difficult things or things that don't happen the way that we would want them to happen, and you can still thank God and you can still trust him for those things. Our youngest son, Silas, he likes to play on a Kindle, and so there are games and there are videos that he watches on the Kindle. And sometimes when dad's working, that becomes the babysitter. Sorry, just time of confession for that. And so there was a certain day where he had spent too much time on the Kindle. And so he asked me if he could play on the Kindle. And I said, no, you've already spent enough time on the Kindle. And so that was extremely disappointing to him, to say the least. And so that night, uh, as he was praying, he thanked God that his dad would not allow him to play on the Kindle. And so there's nothing like being outed to God by your children during their prayer time. But yet the hope in all of that is to build a rhythm into their lives that will never leave them. And so while none of that is ever done in perfection, the reality is, is that we need to spend time. We can never underestimate the value of building these important rhythms into the lives of our families and especially into the lives of our children. 
But woven into these necessary rhythms is the idea of rewards in the Sermon on the Mount. If you look at chapter 6 and verse 1, if you have your Bible open to that, this is what it says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And so there is this idea that there is a selfish spirituality, an attempt to bring the attention to yourself so the glory and honor that should belong to God instead falls on you for your religiosity. And rather than God receiving that glory by our hidden lives, we receive the glory for our appearance of being religious. But really, the prevalent spirituality in the West is not the pursuit of blatant evil. As believers, what happens to us is we we settle for what we assume to be good enough spiritually. It is the deception that believes we can serve King Jesus while treasuring the things of this world, of this earth. And we're going to find out today that Jesus says this is impossible. The idea of the casual Christian, it does not exist. It cannot exist. And then there's the life of the disciple. There's a reward in living the life that Jesus calls us to. And there's a reward in that that is far better than anything we could build for ourselves or anything this world has to offer. It's a different kind of a reward. It's not found in possessions or money. There's a certain kind of reward with watching your children disciple their children so that generation after generation of your family loves and adores Jesus Christ. There's a certain kind of reward with spending your time, your effort, and your resources with churches and with organizations that are making disciples and having an incredible impact for the kingdom of God. And there's a certain kind of reward watching someone you have discipled make other disciples so that you're honoring God's words and you're following the marching orders of King Jesus. But here's a sober truth about all of these things. They will never ever happen naturally. Those things will not just occur unless under God's guidance, you're building the trellis, the structure in your life for these things to occur. They're never going to happen. And consequently, you will never understand the life that God has for you. And so this brings us closer to our text today. In verses 19 through 24 of chapter 6, it begins a different section. And in this section, it deals with the proper mindset, the outlook each disciple should have on life. This section is the high-level view of what life should be about and how we should go about living it. It's the macro-level view of the consequences of life decisions. And while the idea is to point us to the goodness of God and what a life lived out in fullness of the gospel offers, it also warns us about the dangers of a flippant, half-hearted approach to life. And herein lies the problem because this is where most people land. Our default position is to lay up treasures here on earth, to pursue the things that will never fulfill the deepest longing of our hearts, will never speak to our souls in any meaningful way. See, we have a heart issue that believes the things of this earth is the ultimate reward. And while that is not true, we believe that. And as a result, we're blinded to the reality that this causes, that the the Root cause, rather, is our own selfishness and self-centeredness. And what we miss in the sinful misunderstanding of all this is that we have an inheritance as children of the King that nothing in this world can offer us. With a mindset that treasures heaven, however, sees this life with eternity in view, we recognize that whatever we lose in earthly treasure, we stand to gain far, far, far more what awaits us in glory, things that don't hold a candle to anything on this earth. But here's the thing. 
Treasuring Jesus is more than cognitive ascent. It's more than just knowing that in your mind, if you will. It is more than just the recognition that Jesus is ultimate. It's more than just a mental exercise or once a week Sunday morning reminder that treasuring heaven is the path that we should travel because of the nature of our flesh. We have this bent toward the things of this world and laying up treasures in heaven will never happen naturally. And that's why if you're serious about spending time with God, you have to make time for God and even schedule him into your calendar. And when we do this, God will meet us and he will show us the problems of our heart and he will light a path for us in a direction that we should go in life. It's like the psalmist says in chapter 119 of Psalms, your word is a lamp unto my feet and it is a light unto my path. And in effect, when we make the time to meet with God, he will show us the life of a disciple. And the life of a disciple is this. It's one that follows the path of a servant. That doesn't sound intriguing, does it? It doesn't sound like the idea of success in this world, but it follows the path of a servant. It sees greatness as giving of ourselves and our things rather than the accumulation of those things. It is forfeiting the right to build our own kingdom so that we might have the privilege of serving the king and the kingdom that will never end. It is punning on pursuing what the world would categorize as success or the win in order to have the eternal joy of serving King Jesus. And as citizens, we have intentionally built in language to communicate this. The name Citizens Church carries with it a great deal of theology because what we're interested in doing here is building and forming citizens of the kingdom of God. We're interested in helping disciples to take that step up. Those disciples who orient their lives around the truth of Scripture and see this as something that needs not only to be believed, but also operated in the world around them. A citizen of the kingdom is not someone who operates Scripture in moral perfection, but rather has a steady diet of confession and repentance as they live out in community with other disciples. And as a result of this, we see Jesus as ultimate because what he has accomplished on our behalf for the glory of God. The disciple lives in a freedom from guilt and shame because their realization is they have a righteousness that they could never achieve on their own, but it has only been gifted to them through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So in light of this reality, and because all of this is true, you see phrases around this place like what? A healthy disciple does what? They serve. A healthy disciple serves. That's not just something we say to try to guilt you into serving in city kids, although I'm not above that. No, I'm kidding, seriously. But the idea is to point out the reality that the disciples see service as paramount and looks for ways to plug into what God would have for them. And so Jesus told us that the greatest in the kingdom of God would be the servant, would be the least. And greatness in God's economy is seen by those who are willing to empty themselves for their Lord and their Savior. So in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 19 through 24 of chapter 6, there are three components that compare the correct approach to life versus the wrong approach to life. The correct approach to life is that you lay up treasures in heaven. The wrong approach is that you lay up treasures on earth. The correct approach is that your eye is healthy so that your entire body is full of light. The wrong approach is that your eye is bad and your entire body is full of darkness. The Bible tells us you can't serve two masters. You will follow the right approach and serve God, or you will follow the wrong approach and you will serve money and possessions and a kingdom that you have built up for yourselves. And the Bible tells us you'll love one and you'll hate the other. And those things are true. Kevin Evans, in last week's sermon, man, he did such a masterful job of laying out what it means to lay up treasures in heaven versus treasures on earth. If you haven't heard that sermon, I, I recommend, I encourage you to go back 
after this is over and listen to that, you'll, you'll get a blessing out of that. But in that sermon, part of what Kevin points out is that whatever you end up treasuring will be the place that your heart lands. Like whatever you treasure in this life, you're going to find your heart there also. That's told to us uh, in, in Scripture. So in practical terms, this is what this means. Your actions, your directions, your pursuits in life flow out of the desires of your heart. And whether you realize it or not, you are in the business of kingdom building. And so the question comes down to this, whose kingdom are you attempting to build? Your own or God's? And so this leads us to examine what Jesus lays before us today, and there are serious implications to treasuring the things of heaven or the things of earth. So let's dive in and take a look at all of this. There are two ideas I want to capture in our text today, verses 22 through 24, and the first is this. Treasuring heaven shows us both how to see and what to see. So the first phrase in verse 22 is that the eye is the lamp of the body. And so this phrase isn't easy to understand as we read through it for the first time. But really, it's the logical next step after declaring what your heart will end up is in the same place as what you treasure. So let me explain. So you see in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The very next phrase is the eye is lamp of the body. So how do those two relate? Well, let's start here. What's the purpose of an eye? The purpose of an eye is to see, right? So it illuminates things for us. And the eye does more than just see things. In an indirect way, the ability to see also protects us from obvious dangers. Let's say we're all at the Grand Canyon, okay? And we're taking in and we're admiring God's creative ability in the Grand Canyon. And your eye is going to notice that there's a place where the ground beneath you ends and the next step, in the words of Bugs Bunny, is a real doozy. And if you take that next step, you're going to fall to the canyon floor, and that fall will probably be fatal. So in this sense, the eye is protecting your body by showing you where the ground runs out. And in this way, you know how far to walk and when to stop walking. And this information is all provided to you by your eye. So think about this as we read this text. This is the sense that Jesus means when he says, if your eye is healthy, it will protect you. Or said in a better way, your whole body will be full of light. The healthy eye is this. The healthy eye is treasuring the things of heaven more than the things of earth. The healthy eye helps you to see life and the things of God in this world. The healthy eye leads you to the kingdom of God. It leads you to the places that he's already at work so that you can join him there. And the healthy eye also does this. It helps you to recognize as the places in this world you're to avoid. It helps you to see the dangers around you. So the ability to see the world and the things of this world in the way that God wants us to see those things is going to lead to your vitality and your health. In short, the healthy eye illuminates our lives so that we can follow and obey God in a way that leads to our flourishing, the best way for us. And so the, the healthy eye protects us in a sense, but that's not all it does. It also helps us to recognize certain things. It helps us to recognize the things in life that are righteous and good. It also helps us to recognize the things in life that are dangerous and evil. And as we recognize the things that are righteous and good, it will lead us, guess what, to compassion and mercy and generosity. The healthy eye also helps us to recognize the places in our heart where we tend to be selfish and self-centered. And thus helps us to avoid the sins of pride and idolatry. And it also helps us to see the majority of things in this life that are neither blatantly righteous nor evil. The healthy eye recognizes all the things in the world that are neutral, those things that can lead to our flourishing or those things that can lead to our demise. Now, I could think of about a thousand different things that would help us to understand this, but this is where I landed, okay? Tacos. 
Are they not just this awesome combination of deliciousness? I don't know of anyone in the world who doesn't like tacos. So you may be out there, but I don't know about you, so let's just keep it that way. So when you enjoy one or two, and you reflect on God's creative ability to bring all that combination of flavor into one particular meal, that meal can legitimately, and and I'm serious about this, it can be an act of worship as you praise God for those things. However, or you could overindulge in that awesomeness, and you could eat 10 tacos in one sitting and become a glutton. Okay, And so it can go either way. Those things are neutral. The taco is not good. It's not evil in and of itself. It's neutral. It depends on how you use it. The healthy eye recognizes the difference. And on the opposite side of that equation, the bad eye is blinded to the realities that God would have for us. The bad eye doesn't recognize the danger. It doesn't see how neutral things can harm us in life. And when you selfishly will lead my heart to treasure the things of this world, things that can never satisfy the deepest longings of my soul or my heart, things that will not lead to my flourishing. So the bad eye will lead me to a self-centered and a self-absorbed existence. The bad eye will find the excuse to avoid the opportunity to serve others. And it will make life about me, myself, and I, the bad eye will lead us to a life that lacks generosity and mercy. As an example of this, there's a parable in Matthew 20. And I want to explain to you the parable, and then I want to read the last few verses to you. So just bear with me as I explain the parable. It's an interesting parable. It's one of those that kind of just blows you away when you stop and you think about it. It really speaks to the sovereignty of God and His mercy in all of life. And the parable goes like this. There was a master who was looking for some laborers to work uh, in his vineyard. And so he went out and he found some laborers. And basically, here's the job. You're going to have to work for 12 hours. You're going to work from 6 in the morning till 6 in the evening. And all day... And for that entire day's worth of work, you'll get paid one denarius. And so the workers agree to that. That's a good deal. We'll come work 12 hours for one denarius. And so at 9 o'clock, three hours into the day, the master goes and finds other workers. And he hires them. He says, there's still nine hours left in the day. Come work for me. And so they come and work. And then three hours later at 12 noon, halfway through the day, he finds other workers. And he brings them into the vineyard. He says, I'll pay you. Come work for me. And then Three hours later, three o'clock in the afternoon, he still finds other workers. He says, there's only three hours left, but come work. There's still work to be done. And so he hires them. And then at five o'clock in the afternoon, with only one hour left in the day, he still hires more workers to come and work in the vineyard. And then at the end of the day, at six o'clock, when it's over, they line up to be paid. And so he pays the ones that he hired last first. So the guy at five o'clock worked one hour. Guess what he gets paid? A denarius. What he agreed to the guys who worked 12 hours. And so the guys who worked 12 hours thinking, hey, he just paid those guys a denarius, man. We're going we're gonna to get a lot more than a denarius. This is going to be great. And then the guys that worked three hours get paid a denarius. And then the guys that worked six hours get paid a denarius. And then the guys who worked nine hours, they get paid a denarius. And this is becoming a head scratcher. And the guys who worked all day, 12 hours, they come up and they also get paid one denarius. And as you can imagine, this is a little troubling for them. So picking up in chapter 20, verse 11, this is what it reads. And on receiving it, meaning the guys who worked 12 hours, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? 
So the last will be first and the first last. So when the laborers are gathered to be paid, the ones who worked only one hour, they get paid the same as everyone, including the ones who worked for 12 hours. And our sense of justice and fairness is troubled by this, is it not? And like, this isn't fair. I mean, we, we want to cry out like, this, this isn't what should be happening. And Jesus' answer to this is profound. It has a profound meaning about his mercy and his sovereignty. His first answer is, I didn't cheat you. I paid you what we agreed to. Take it and go. His second answer is basically, it begins with a statement, ends with a question. It's, I, Jesus, choose to give to this last worker the same that I gave to you. And then he asks a rhetorical question. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And the obvious answer to that is, you're sovereign. Yeah, you can do whatever you want. But it's the second question I want us to focus on. It's the second question that pertains to our text today. Here's the second question. It says, or do you begrudge my generosity? Now, in this, I want you to understand something. When you are translating, sometimes you have to make choices about how you translate something. So in this case, it's being translated from Greek into English. And if you translate something literally, uh, there's a lot of times that it just won't make sense in in the new language. This is the case in this text. I want you to know the translators translated this exactly right. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. He's asking the question, do you begrudge my generosity? But in the Greek, it literally reads this way. Or is your eye bad because I am good? Or is your eye bad because I am good? That's what it literally reads in the Greek. So here's what a bad eye is. A bad eye is someone that is self-absorbed. Life is about them. And because it is about them, they lack the compassion and the generosity that's required of a disciple. So let's back up. I want to make sure we get all this. Verse 21 tells us that your heart ends up with whatever you treasure. The very next phrase, we find out that the eye is the lamp of the body. There's a correlation between what we treasure and how we see. And here's the correlation. If you treasure heaven, you see life as God intended. Your eye is healthy, and therefore your whole body is full of light. And in this way, life may not be easy, but at least it's going the way of God's choosing. But on the other hand, if you treasure the things of this earth, you miss what God has for you. You become blinded to these God-ordained things because you can't see past the false treasure. And here's the brutal reality in all of this. By worldly standards, your false treasure may look like a win. The pursuit of success, of money, the acquisition of stuff, the notoriety that comes with the success, the acknowledgement of your success, and should you either accomplish these things or somehow fall into them, what's likely to happen is pride and idolatry are not far behind those things. But in this world, your whole body ends up full of darkness, even though we are fooled into believing the worldly success is light. Like the world will tell us those are good things, those are right things. And so what ends up looking like light and good things, we put our hope in those things rather than putting our hope in Jesus. And that's why it's a bad thing. Notice what the Bible says in verse 23. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? If you're fooled into believing these things in your life are good things when in reality they're darkness, how great is that darkness? How blind are you, in other words? 
So if your success and what you achieve in this world leads you to treasure the things of this world, then you're blinded to that spiritual reality. And just to be clear, because someone has material possessions or because they've earned a lot of money, that does not mean they're automatically outside of God's will. I'm going to make that very, very clear. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it spells out the responsibilities for wealthy believers. What that tells me is that God is going to allow some believers to be wealthy, and they're to steward that well so that they can be generous with those. By the way, I don't have time to get into this today, but if your entire household makes $75,000 a year or more, you are in the wealthiest 2% of people in the world. If you live with a roof over your head, you have more than three changes of clothes. You have transportation that has four tires, and you eat every day. The vast majority of the world would consider you wealthy. So let us be careful how we read into what wealth actually is. There's a a dark, deceptive lie that tells us that we can flirt with the line between treasuring the things of heaven and treasuring the things of earth and not be worse for wear. And here's what happens when you play this game. Your heart is already treasuring the things of this earth. So guess which way you're going to ultimately lean. Guess which way you're going to ultimately go. Here's the outcome of playing this dangerous game. Your life is full of darkness. Why? Because of the way we view Jesus, his kingdom, and his word in light of what the world has to offer is going to have this cumulative, holistic effect on our entire lives. Look what scripture says. If the eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. It does not say, if your eye is healthy, your eye will be full of light. If your eye is healthy, your entire body will be full of light, meaning the wholeness of your existence. Everything that you are will be full of light. If you're going the way of treasuring treasuring heaven and you're following King Jesus and you're going the direction that God would have for you, you can't help but have good, spiritual, right things come into your life. There will be fruit that will be born out of that. On the opposite side of that, if your eye is bad, the Bible doesn't say it's just your eye that will be bad. Your whole body will be full of darkness. Everything about you will crave sin and the things of this world, and you'll be blinded to that reality. And what a horrible, horrible place to be. So the eye being full of light, it protects us. It helps us to recognize the things this world would need to be about and it has this cumulative, holistic effect on our lives. And then there's the second idea in this text, that treasuring heaven helps me to follow the right master. In case you haven't picked up on this yet, spiritually there is no neutral ground. Notice what verse 24 says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That word for money is actually a word, mammon. It's a Semitic word that means money or possessions. There's no such thing as being neutral, where you end up in a different camp other than treasuring heaven with a healthy eye or treasuring earth with a bad eye. There's no way to play both sides of this coin. No one can serve two masters. When you play this game, you're deceiving yourself into believing you're more clever than God. And let me tell you, this will not end well for you. It will not go the direction you hope. In the West, we have created this mythological person known as the casual Christian, the guy or the gal 
who gets to treasure the things of this world while claiming to love Jesus. The person who does whatever they want, whenever they want, and still makes a claim to Christ's lordship. It is the attempt to look the part without any demonstrable evidence of a love for Jesus. I've had friends and I've had family members that have gone down this path, and some of them are dead and gone now. With some of them, I've had really difficult conversations where you have to broach the subject with them. They claim to love Jesus, but there's no fruit to back up that claim. And you get to endure the accusation that you're judging them in a harsh way. And after you reassure them that's not the case, but rather this conversation is born out of a deep concern and a love for them. And in that moment that you discuss the idea, the real conversion is marked by change that shows the real, tangible, observable difference between your life before you knew Jesus Christ and your life as you grow after you've come to be saved by him. And in that moment, you realize how deceived they are to the reality of their spiritual blindness because they either respond with a blank stare or an angry response. And they claim a love for Jesus that, and still hold to the things of this world as ultimate. They're walking, breathing embodiment of a lie called the casual Christian. The Western idea of the casual Christian is unbiblical. You'll never find it in Scripture. It is an invention in our own minds. It is a myth that does not exist. And yet, here we are with many, many, many people playing this game. Look what Scripture says. No one can serve two masters. How many people get to serve two masters? Not a one. No one can serve two masters. Here's what Scripture says. You will end up loving one and hating the other. And let me tell you something. If you love the things of this world, guess which one you hate? And you still want to claim to the Lordship of Christ? Like, that is a dangerous game. It cannot be. We cannot be people who go down that path. The truth is, everyone ends up loving one and hating the other for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So please hear me on this. The solution to your problem, which is sin, and the solution to your pride and your idolatry, because that's what your sin is, because you're telling God, I know better than you. I can serve two masters. I can play both sides of this coin. You're lying to yourself. That's pride and that's idolatry. The solution to your problem is not to get more religious. Your sin problem will never, ever be conquered without a deep and abiding love for Jesus Christ. That's the beginning place. That's the place we have to start because treasuring Jesus is more than cognitive sin. It's more than something in our mind that we know that he's Lord. Treasuring Jesus and the things of heaven means that my heart is there also. Treasuring Jesus is a life that demonstrates a deep love for him because our hearts, we treasure what he's done for us. Why? Because he's worth it. He's worth it. And we've been gifted with the ability by God to see him as the precious treasure that's hidden in the field that we would go sell anything and everything in order to be obtained that field. That's what it's like to follow Jesus. And listen, this is our heart for you, that you would love Jesus in this way. And just so you understand that this is a New Testament Biblical idea that this isn't just contained in the Sermon on the Mount. I want us to briefly look at another passage in Philippians 1, verses 19 through 30. 
Now, all I'm going to do, I, I don't have time to get into the commentary. We don't have time to get into the weeds here. I'm just going to read this for you. I want to set the context for you. The Apostle Paul, at this moment, is in prison for his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, listen, think about this. What if we're in a foreign country today and we're in prison for our faith in Christ? How would that go for you? How would your walk with Christ be enhanced by that? Like, oh, sign me up. Yeah, let's go to a foreign country and get thrown in jail for Jesus. Okay, but this is exactly where he finds himself. So I want us to ask ourselves a few questions as we read this passage together. Is Paul treasuring heaven or is he treasuring earth? Question number one. Question number two. Is Paul's eye full of light or is it full of darkness? And question number three. What master does Paul serve? So I want us to think on these three questions as we read Philippians 1 here, okay? Is he treasuring heaven or earth? Question number one. Question number two, is his eye full of light? Is it full of darkness? Question number three, what master does Paul serve? Think on those three questions as I read this. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. By the way, verse 21 is probably a verse a lot of you have memorized. I don't hear many people speak like this today. I don't hear many people think like this today. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let me tell you what that means. When Paul woke up in the morning, his life was about Jesus Christ and that was plan A and he didn't have a plan B. And so as he went throughout the day, his life was about Jesus Christ. And at the end of his day, as he prayed to his Lord and Savior, he says, if you'll allow me to wake up tomorrow, I'll make tomorrow about you too. And if you take my life while I sleep, that's far, far, far better. That's the win. I don't hear many people speak like that. For to me, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Verse 22, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you. You're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake." Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. It's different language, but do you see what I'm talking about? Here's a man who treasured heaven and couldn't wait to get there. Who could see the circumstances of his life, by the way, that were less than ideal, and see it as an opportunity for the kingdom of God, who's far more concerned about the well-being of his brothers and his sisters in Christ than he is about his own well-being. And in all of this, we see that his eye was healthy and his entire life was full of light, who gladly served his master, the same master who loved him and saved him and delivered him. And like the Apostle Paul longed for the spiritual growth of the believers he knew in churches that he had helped to plant, I pray for the same at Citizens Church. I pray that we would see it the same, that we would have a group of people and disciples that would grow together into the fullness of what Christ has for us, that we will never be like Jesus unless we spend time with God. And we will never spend time with God 
unless we make time for God. And in making time for God, there's a need for certain rhythms in our lives to be generous people because that's what the healthy eye does. It makes us generous people who are giving. People who have a rhythm of prayer, a rhythm of forgiveness, a rhythm of fasting as they call out to God to do the things that only God can do. And the consistency of those rhythms points us to a reality about life and more importantly, how God wants us to view the life he has given us where we lay up treasures in heaven. Our hearts end up treasuring Jesus. And when we treasure Jesus, the eye illuminates our lives with light. And when we see clearly the way God intends for me to see this life, I end up following the one true master, King Jesus. May we at Citizens Church be a people who are formed to lay up treasures in heaven and are shaped to love and adore King Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the truth and the beauty of your scripture, the simplicity of it. We get to go one way or the other. To love and adore you. Hate the things that the enemy would love us to embrace. And I pray that as a people that we would see clearly what God's word says. I pray that we would be a people who would see the brutal and honest reality of who you are, the beauty of who you are, that you've loved us, that you came here to save us, to make a better way for us, and that we would embrace those things. And Lord, I pray that we would be that people. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the things that we need to see. I pray that you would give us the healthy eye to see clearly the things that you want for us as individuals and as a church body. I'm so thankful that you're in this place. I'm so thankful that you're in this church. And I'm so thankful and grateful for the things that you're doing here. And I pray all of this in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen.